HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. If you're a farmer in New York State, join the New York State Grown and Certified program to let people know your food is grown right, right here. Learn more at certified.ny.gov. I'm Greg Blaze, host of Cutting the Curd. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. listening to Eat Your Words on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Kathy Irway. It's a lovely fall day today in Brooklyn. Uh, we are two days away from the general election. Dun, dun, dun. So I, I think it's always great to look back at history as we uh, may be entering a new, po- uh, new era today um, in the next year with a new president. And, um, you know, let's look at the policies that have worked over the years and maybe what didn't or what other unexpected consequences happen um, with regards to public policy. Um, So I'm talking today with the authors who have uh, written an incredible history. It is a culinary history of the Great Depression. It is called The A Square Meal. The authors are local authors Jane Ziegelman and Andrew Coe. How are you? Good. Good. We're good. Thanks so much for joining. Um, So, Jane, your last book was the highly acclaimed 97 Orchard, an edible history of five immigrant families in one New York tenement. You also curate the Tenement Museum in New York City. Well, I I curate food-themed events there, yes, from on and off from time to time. Excellent. And, Andrew, your James Beard uh, nominated... Uh, book was Chop Suey, A Cultural History of Chinese Food in the United States. Yes. That was a great book. And so you guys clearly are culinary historians. And uh, would you call yourselves that? Or? Yes. Yes. Okay. Yes. Good. Great. Well, culinary historians, independent scholars, writers. Husband and wife. Yeah, husband and wife. Also. Eaters. <laughs> Brooklynites. Brooklynites. <laughs> um, so, you know, this, this book really cuts a an incredible cross-section of interests that I think are really relevant today. So everything from social programs, like let's talk about food stamps or SNAP, right, Um, to food justice issues, um, things like access to fresh food in impoverished neighborhoods. 
and um, the quest for nutritional perfection. So things like vitamin supplements and other kind of meal replacement liquids <laughs> that we're seeing these days mm-hmm. all tie into, um, you know, the the pivotal moment that you guys trace, which is the, the Great Depression and its impact on food. And uh, I just have to ask, why did you decide to tackle this topic? Um, well, we had both finished our books about around the same time, and we were looking um, for new topics. And um, we realized that the Great Depression um, was interesting for a number of reasons. And, and um, one of the reasons is, is that it marked a big change um, from the past. Like the 19th century, we had this idea that America was like... a incredibly abundant Mm -hmm. and that we were living in a kind of in the middle of a breadbasket which could never like the food would never give out as long as we kept traveling west you know into the into the (laughs) toward the frontier there would always be great soil and and great land and and um anybody could make a go of it and buffered by the uh, the the fact that europe was you know having all these famines and people were coming over to america to be fed Right. Abundance. We had never known famine. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's unlike any other country on Earth. Um, and so in the Great Depression, this is what changed. Mm-hmm. And um, as we got deeper into the story, we realized that not only that that was one big change, but also kind of marked a pivot between um, a 19th century way of eating based on subsistence agriculture, locally produced food, um, to a you know 20th century modern way of eating, the way we eat today, um, which is everything is shipped in from out of state or, or around the world, and um, you know we have supermarkets and refrigerated foods and canned foods, um, et cetera, et cetera. So That's this right. is the time when um, that world really became possible. That's right. Uh, Jane, did you want to add anything to that, or why did you? Any other take on why why this yeah, is relevant? Yes, or? I mean there, there's um, in addition to the material differences in the way we eat, we in the Great Depression began to think about food differently, mm-hmm. and that was another really important shift. And I think one of the really fundamental differences is is um, the importance of nutrition and how mm-hmm. that became a kind of guiding principle directing us toward what foods we should and should not eat. I thought it was really an amazing parallel that uh, you write about how Eleanor Roosevelt, as the first lady, yeah. really helped move this nutritional campaign in the in America, um, sh- kind of like reorganizing nutritional standards, um, trying to attain the, for the best health of the country. And if you look at the parallels today, you see Michelle Obama with her, yeah. you know, let's move campaign. Yeah, and really I mean, in a way, Michelle Obama sort of took the cue from Eleanor Roosevelt, who um, even before the Depression was a, um, a proponent of what you know, we know today is the home economics movement, mm-hmm. um, which in fact um, was a progressive social reform right. movement, came out of the early 20th century and was in its way this, a, a really sort of radical right. um, new way of thinking about women's work. Efficiency. Efficiency, efficiency. Very much so. And now we're saying, let's get back to the land. Slow, slow, slow food. So that's interesting in its own. Yeah, no, in a way we're reacting against a lot of the sort of values that were held up as as sort of um, uh, the way that food should be Mm -hmm. um, 
during the Great Depression, the beginning, it was, you know, it was the beginning of food modernity. And we're trying to now reach back right, right. before Convenience that. and so forth. Um, well, I feel very enlightened having read your book, and I wanted to share a little bit, uh, a little snippet, if I may. Oh, yeah, a passage right. from the beginning. Um, this hopefully explains what I was just saying about efficiency and the differences that, that you know, uh, that we see today in, like, the, I, I guess, the food movement. But um, <clears throat> you write about a growing rift between country life and urban life and how this tension really um, put in motion a lot of the changes that we saw during the Great Depression afterwards. So, okay, I'll just start reading. In great urban centers, the pulse of the factory served as a kind of metronome for the city at large. In the urban workplaces, where, workpla- where wages were paid by the hour, efficiency was a measure of success. Factory hands demonstrated their worth by completing the maximum number of standardized motions in a given period. As After the factory whistle blew, the time was on their own. But even at leisure, city dwellers saw time as a resource, like coal or copper. That fear of, that time might run out, as every resource will, left them with a dread of time wasted. On the farm, meanwhile, time was not something you stockpiled like firewood, Farm tourists took as long as they took. There was no rushing in the ear of corn, and the workday stretched to accommodate the tasks at hand. Time was elastic. The minutes and hours that mattered so much to city folk were irrelevant to the drawn-out biological processes on which the farmer depended. In place of the clock, the farmer's yardstick for measuring time was the progress of the seasons. As a result, his view of time was expansive, focused on the sweeping cycles of the natural world. For city people, time was fractured into finite segments like boxes on a conveyor belt. On the farm, time was continuous, like a string around a tree, one season flowing inevitably into the next. And so, um, so post-World War I, a lot of people left the farm. A lot of people left the rural area, and that was seen as a big problem. And, and we see, of course, nowadays there's a fraction of people who are farmers. So this, is, this has been a growing, I guess, rural problem <laughs> um, since this time. But um, I think that it's really interesting to look back at the different attitudes and, and how those social form, reform campaigns, the domestic campaigns that you know, uh, women of the day were trying to advocate for in the kitchen as well as in, uh, you know, on the farm and how that impacted uh, our, our way of looking at producing food. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's really Well, I mean, one of the things that, w- that was going on, it was, I mean, both, um, you know, it was what they, one of the things they wanted to do during this time was actually these reformers actually wanted to free women from the kitchen. Right. Free women from, um, you know, the drudgery of kitchen tasks, um, from you know working um, from early in the morning to late at night to prepare food to put food on the table to make your own bread um, to make your own biscuits um, you know to to have to go to the garden to pick vegetables mm-hmm. and can them for the for the winter et cetera et cetera and um, and there was a huge campaign to to um, change that and help women women have a find a role for themselves in the larger community away from the home. Um, you know, had to have jobs to work and to work, you know, to, to do community service or something like that, um, because the kitchen was was seen as a kind of ball and chain on women's lives. And at the same time, we saw an interest in nutritional science progressing. So the advent of sort of like the processed food or, you know, prepared. Yeah, I guess processed food oh, industry yeah. was happening at the same time. Nutritional supplements and things like flour 
and uh, enriched, I guess you could say. Well, that that really comes toward the the end of the depression. Okay. Um, as um, manufacturing becomes more modernized, and it's sort of the beginning of of really mass food production mm-hmm. um, and and advances in technology that allows us to manipulate foods in all kinds of new ways. Mm-hmm. And so that sort of, it's in the le- years leading up to, to the Second World War is when you see all of those machinations. I see. So, um, so Teddy Roosevelt and many other thinkers of the day, and I found it's really interesting that there was a whole rural sociology yeah. uh, school of thought being formed um, really we're trying to combat the issue of um, the rural flight or the rural problem. Yeah, or city city drift. Right. And how well or how well did they not do in, in uh, sort of addressing that? Well, I don't think they did a, a very good job at all. Um, I mean, they brought people's attention to the problem, mm-hmm. but they didn't reverse the problem. Um, because um, economically, the city was where everything was happening. So the city was where the action was. Um, and the only thing that really reversed the, um, the rural flight, the flight of farmers into the city, was actually the onset of the Great Depression. Because as factories closed in the city, people who had, you know, had, still had family out in the country returned to the country so they could, like, you know, they would, you know, go back to farming and, um, you know, grow their own food just out of, out of desperation. Um, but it, it really didn't do a very good job. I see. Um, you know, on the other hand, <laughs> Andrew, okay. um, the, this uh, country life movement, which was right. this effort to mm-hmm. sort of reform um, rural and culture their life. Mm-hmm. and, in a sense, impose sort of urban values on the American countryside, was did have impact on the way people lived. Um, and... And in a sense, the kind of um, the attempts to modernize right. the farmhouse, um, which were promised by the country life movement, were fulfilled mm-hmm. during the Depression, during programs like the Rural, Rural Electrification Administration, which brought electricity to people's farms mm-hmm. um, all across the United States. And suddenly um, you could have refrigerators. Mm-hmm. And if you had refrigerators, that means you, you, could, you didn't have to can foods anymore. Mm-hmm. You could just keep the food in the freezer and you could go buy frozen foods, um, which were, you know, the cutting edge at the time and very exciting. Um, so it just um, it began to cut into people's connection to the mm-hmm. farm. Uh, to the land, um, because uh, suddenly you were you were you could be more part of like the larger culinary right. modern system. And it's so interesting because you see these uh, reforms happening with what seems like the best of intentions to it's help true. out, you know, the the rural communities and the farmers by modernization, mechanization, things like that. But um, do you think that this also propelled a sort of more a thirst for more and more output? I guess imposing the city values of you know time is money and so forth. <laughs> um, do you think that that forced like you know bigger um, you know yeah bigger production? Yeah, it did. I mean, in in a lot of ways, and this is this is a complicated economic mm-hmm. history. But the the years before the depression are sort of the last era of the independent. Yeah. Um, farm. farm. Okay. Yeah, the independent family farm, wow. where a family sort of lives off the land, and um, in a self-sustaining way, that is a kind of um, 
American ideal that that you see that period is, is really Gone. closing. Yeah. yeah. Until the, maybe the seventies back to landers perhaps. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. But also, I mean, one thing that happened during the great depression is um, they wanted to modernize farm life. And that also meant, you know, new farm equipment and tractors and, and all kinds of mechanized, you know, machinery to make um, the, the food production more efficient. And that meant that you needed a far less people on the farm. So it actually, you know, impelled people to leave the farm because there were no longer jobs there. And so that's why you had people, particularly leaving the South, I mean, like all the sharecroppers heading to Chicago um, or, you know, northern industrial cities or heading to California because there were no jobs left um, in in the South because of mechanization. Fascinating. You know, one of the really interesting things about this period and this attempt at at, uh, rural reform is to look at the responses of the women who were the objects of this of this reform and um, exactly Mm -hmm. and um, how there was um, significant pushback Uh by by rural women saying, who are these people who want us to become sort of efficient and who want us to to um, to function like workers on an assembly line? We really love our lives and we have so much that you city people don't don't understand. Yeah. So there was um, that we shouldn't think of these rural women as sort of passive um, recipients of the sort of reformers' advice. There was a lot of a lot of um, resistance put up by these ladies. Wow, wow! You know, this history is so um, fascinating. I'd love to talk in the in the next uh, after a quick little commercial break more about how um, you know what we can take from these lessons in history. So we'll be right back after a quick little break. And this one is called Relax, It's Just the End of the World by Techstar. We'll be right back. State cares about New York's farmers. That's why we've developed the New York State Grown and Certified Program. It's a seal New Yorkers can look for when they're shopping for food that comes from local farms. Customers are more likely to buy food that has the New York State Grown and Certified seal because it tells them that it comes from a farm that follows environmentally responsible, farm-safe protocols. In other words, the New York State Grown and Certified seal tells them their food is grown right, right here in New York State. You're a farmer with a lot to do, but the time it takes to sign up for the program is a great investment for your business because it lets shoppers know that your food meets higher standards, has passed assessments, and is produced by environmentally friendly farming practices. To learn about participating in the program, go to certified.ny.gov. All right, we're back chatting more with Jane Ziegelman and Andrew Coe, who have written A Square Meal, A Culinary History of the Great Depression. This is really, really a fascinating book, and I think it's a really timely book. So Um, there's so much to talk about within it, but I don't want to forget um, the incredible research you have done about hunger and poverty throughout this investigation. Um, 
so I, I thought it was really interesting, the differing attitudes about um, feeding the hungry throughout the years. So in, in one point, you write about how um, in the old world, in the British, uh, <laughs> in Britain, um, people thought of um, the worthy hungry and then the not worthy. So there's people who are like widows or elderly, or disabled, they're worthy. And then there's people who are just sort of, I don't know, drunkards. Who are not worthy? Or just too darn lazy. You know, too that, darn that lazy. Was the characterization of of the poor. And you they see just so didn't much. have the right. get up and go to do what they needed to do. Um, and you see the parallels today. You know, in talking about food assistance and um, you know, or just social welfare in general. Right. Well, if you don't work, there's, there's it's a moral issue. Mm-hmm. And um, if you're able to work but but don't actually like have a job or are not actively seeking work, then somehow you're immoral and that makes you um, somebody who if not is it won't, maybe won't be punished, but c- certainly somebody who won't be helped. Mm-hmm. So during the Great Depression, Everybody's hungry. Not everybody, but like a great deal of people now are suddenly hungry. Um, is that where we get a lot of the legacy for today's uh, food assistance programs? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Sure. Okay. Um, before before the Great Depression, um, up until um, Franklin Roosevelt became president, um, we essentially did not. The federal government certainly did not give uh, any food assistance whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the same time, we really didn't have um, any real consistent, coherent national nutrition program. Mm. Um, and um, this all changed during the Great Depression um, because millions of people were hungry, um, and some of the peop- some people were actually starving, and actually some people actually starved to death. Um, and um, it. It, um, and, and at the same time, people were voting. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and hunger became, and whether it's, it's right to give people food or not, was, was like a major issue in the 1932 election. And um, Hoover said, um, no, he's not going to um, feed the people unless it's really necessary. Uh-huh. And it, this, is, this was a time when there was 25% unemployment, the worst unemployment the United States had ever had. And there was lots of problems and, you know, people were, you know, hungry people were roaming the street and scouring the garbage dumps. And so the question was, um, when, when will he really change his mind? And he never would. Yeah. Um, and Roosevelt offered them hope. Right. Um, and he offered them food. He said that he is, he's going to make, a, a, you know, federal food relief will be one of the jobs of his administration. Um, and um, it changed um, Amer- the way Americans thought about food and also changed their relationship to the federal government. So in doing so, and I understand Herbert Hoover did this also in order to feed the, the soldiers during World War I. He sort of fixed prices against inflation um, for commodities um, in agriculture, right? During, the, during World War I, yes. Yes, and yes. then didn't... Um, Del, uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt also sort of take that up in order to feed, or no? Uh, um, no. Well, no? the problem with price with, with pri- agricultural prices during the Great Depression is they were incredibly depressed. Mm-hmm. Um, that that there was incredible deflation, um, which meant that prices were dropping and farmers couldn't uh, af- um, afford to bring their food to market because nobody uh, nobody had the money to there, buy it. There, so there he, was food. I mean, right. which just goes to the point that there was food. It just wasn't getting. To, to the hungry. Okay. So he was trying to prop up prices 
Um, and one of the ways he did it was actually instituted a huge food buying program by the federal government. They would buy it, and then it handed out, um, hand out that food um, as surplus food to relief clients. I see. So, so I guess I was thinking that that may um, sort of help explain some of the legacies that we have today in government um, sort of uh, assisting commodity crops and so forth. Oh, yes, definitely, perfect. definitely. Okay. I mean, there's somewhere in, in the United States, I don't know exactly where, there's a mountain of cheese <laughs> um, because the government is, is trying to prop up cheese prices and, um, and because cheese producers are making too much. Right. And this is a direct legacy of uh, the Great Depression. Now, do you think that it's not so necessary now that it, we're in the Great Depression? Is this something that we need to sort of look, uh, you know, take a second look at it and say, why are we still doing this? Or do you think that, I mean, hey, we're in a pre-recession or post-recession, post -recession. sorry, um, era now, or do you think... Pre-recession too, probably. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> we're all... Yeah. No, I mean, uh, I, I don't know. It seems like these things were done at times of great need as like a dire... Well, I mean, I know. think the, the, the reality is, is that there are always people in need. Mm -hmm. And um, particularly in a large and complicated um, economy like we have today, um, there always are groups of people who fall through the cracks, who aren't able to find jobs. Uh, there are industries which are firing people, and, um, and these people need help. Um, and, um, you know, the attitude is, uh, among some people who are against giving food relief, is mm -hmm. that if you give these people the food, they won't be so active in looking for a job. Mm -hmm. Essentially, we're still wrestling with the same um, ambivalence that we saw in the Depression about whether it's correct or not to give people a helping hand right, when they're down. Right. And the, there's this tremendous fear that by doing so, we'll crush something mm -hmm. inside, some kind of um, that sort of Will? American right spark that industriousness that sort yeah, pull of us uh, pull ourselves up by the bootstraps you know it's it's the frontier spirit um, and of course the question is you know how did that ever really exist but all, but also um, um, there's some people you know some people have bad luck and and it means that not just those you know let's say a father um, um, loses his job. Are you going to punish the children as well? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it's a timeless subject then that, um, you know, people seem to be having current conversations about all the time. Um, I think one, something, ah, one of the things that's really fun reading this book is coming across all these tidbits uh, about these moments in history. And uh, you write about how the hobo, um, one of the stereotypical hobo foods was the mulligan stew. <laughs> I've seen this at like fancy restaurants. Like, really? Oh my lord! Uh, I don't know. It's like a soup, right? Or no? Well, it's like it's like a watery stew um, made out of whatever um, cheap meat and vegetables you could uh, beg, borrow, or steal, okay. or, or or you know, or or buy. Um, but it's made from like a couple of old carrots, some some really cheap beef, you mm -hmm. know, gristly and a lot of bone. Um, and some potatoes, and you just cook it and cook it um, until it's it's nice and thick, and and all the flavors extracted from the ingredients. 
It's nothing special. It's nothing special. But it's, it's made on a campfire, you know, in an old gallon tin can. <laughs> um, so it has this kind of aura of yes. uh, being something. The, the romance. Yeah. Exactly. The romance of the road. Yeah. yeah. I think that's really funny. Was there a hobo named Mulligan who invented it? Or it well, it's, it's, there's lots of mythology about it, but uh, who knows? I mean, they think that it's one of the foods which was uh, developed by the uh, uh, Union Pacific Railroad gangs during the 19th century. It's one mm-hmm. of the, you know, the workers were fed this kind of food mm. so okay so reading your book and maybe you know my head is so into food in general i get the sense that um people you know talked about food and food policy in the mainstream i guess policy discussions a lot more back during this time than than we were just talking about how we don't see the can the candidates right now talking enough about food policy um what do you guys think what did, well, they're certainly not talking about food policy at all in, yeah. in our current presidential campaign. Um, and, and back then, I think—I mean, food, the politics of food and, and um, handing out food and relief food was on, um, you know, topic A for Congress and for the presidents back in the—particularly in, during the 1930s. And um, huge debates were going on at the time, and, and um, there was lots—it was a very important issue. And so was nutrition. This mm-hmm. was um, really the beginning of um, a kind of mainstream knowledge of things like carbohydrates and mm-hmm. proteins and calories and uh, minerals and vitamins. Mm-hmm. Um, this was knowledge that homemakers, women, suddenly felt they really had to have in order to um, sort of um, wring the most nutrients right. out of the food and keep their kids from getting deficiency diseases. Yeah. So it was a time when people felt um, knowledge of nutrition was really critical to the health of their families. And now knowledge of nutrition is critical, but it's for not starvation reasons, but well, obesity now, and cardiac. Exactly. We're but that's to. another form of malnutrition. Right. Because yeah. you're eating the wrong kinds of foods. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So do you hope or do you do you, I kind of I, I guess do you kind of wish that the candidates today or, or just in mainstream political discussion we're talking about any certain issues that that you find um pressing nowadays that aren't being discussed well i think the 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 issue of of whether it's right um or not to um give people who don't have food and who and uh are going hungry to give them food yeah and um we believe that yes uh, they should be given food Mm -hmm. um and that's certainly not being discussed today i mean both candidates in our current election are essentially saying, well, that they're both going to improve the economy and that will sort of lift all boats mm-hmm. and um, people will get fed that way. I believe Clinton um, has a little bit, um, is certainly taking the issue more seriously. Um, um, the other candidate um, has not mentioned it at all. Right, right. Um, okay. But the Democratic platform, party platform, does mention um, food insecurity, definitely. And that's super relevant right now. Um, do, uh, do you think that uh, the discussion of nutrition is being f- a little bit um, out of the limelight with the political discussion? I, I haven't seen too many t- talk about it right now. Uh, certainly the Obamas have done quite a bit of work in you know just uh, public opinion and so forth and uh, initiatives for children. But, uh, yeah, I, I don't see too much of that going on right now in the campaign. It, no, it's, it's, we're really sort of quiet on that topic. Yeah. And it's really dangerous <laughs> um, because people 
are hungry and people don't have access um, to all the good things that they should have being that it's here, mm-hmm. but um, but the access isn't to, there. Yeah, it sounds like a lot of folks are saying, you know, we need to continue the work that the Obamas have started. And, and clearly... From your book, a lot of other people have done yeah. a lot of progress in as well. So, right. well, our votes count. So yeah, exactly. go out there on Tuesday. And I really think that this history um, gives a, a lot of inspiration and uh, hopefully, mo- uh, yeah, momentum to having those conversations more and more. That would be great. Yes, yeah. yes, we hope so. All right. Well, I guess that's about all the time we have for today. But thank you so much for this really engaging book and discussion. And uh, I hope many people have many discussions over their dinner tables about it soon. So thanks again, Jane. Thank you so much. Over the Thanksgiving table. Over the Thanksgiving table. Uh, While you're hopping out at the Bowery Mission, perhaps, at the food (laughs) lines there. All right. Well, thanks again, Andrew and Jane. And thanks, everyone at Heritage. We'll see you next week on Eat Your Words. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.